episode 145, Engaging the Empowered Patient Unit. Today, I speak with Andrew Shore, who is the founder of Patient Power. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First of all, new lingo, patient unit. A patient unit consists of the patient and their family or otherwise who are actively engaged in a patient's care. Some patient units are, let's just say, under-engaged. We talk about these patients a lot. Other patient units are motivated and empowered and could really use our help to maximize the results of their efforts. We don't talk a lot about these patients, but let's change that. Today, I speak with Andrew Shore, who is the founder of Patient Power and a frequent speaker and writer. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we often talk about patient engagement from the provider side, like it's something that we need to spark in patients so they will be better able to follow provider directions. But whether we realize it or not, and I have to say I didn't realize it until we spoke a little bit earlier, this is a pretty payer or provider-centric point of view. Set us straight, Andrew. How do patients have power and why is it fundamental that they do? First of all, patients and their families, and I'm a two-time cancer survivor, our goal is to get cured or if we can't be cured, live as well as we can. And we have an urgency about it. We often don't feel that same urgency from the organizations that serve us. We don't always feel that urgency from the medical office staff when we go into a clinic. Often we can't get through to a clinic on the phone or it's difficult. Often the doctor has one hand on the door because they have to see a lot of patients when you're in the exam room. And we're reading at the same time the changes in medicine. First of all, new science developing, and we're not sure always that at the clinic level that's being offered to us, or if they don't have it, would they tell us that it's available somewhere else? So we have an urgency to get well, and uh, we're banding together with other patients to try to have that aggregate power, and we're seeing it. I mean, our group started a Facebook community just three months ago in cancer. There's over 45,000 followers in three months, patients talking to patients. So there is that power, and that's going to come over people like a wave unless they sort of surf it together with the patient. How common is this type of patient, you know, one who is capable of reading, in fact, the new science? Well, I think, first of all, you have to define the patient as the family affected by certainly a serious illness. You have to see it as a family unit. So when sometimes you say, well, this population, that population, this age group, that age group, boy, are they really plugged in? Are they really going to speak up for themselves? That's going to vary. But it is changing and growing. But when you start to define the patient as the family, then you say, is there someone in that family who's going to be seeking information, who's going to be saying to the doctor, what about this? What about that? Who's going to be saying, hey, mom, we're not going to stay at that clinic. We're going to go the other way on the freeway 
because they may be offering something that can help you get well. The one thing that I hear commonly in conversations that I'm, I'm in with payers, providers, pharma, and others, the topic of conversation generally revolves around the under-engaged patient as opposed to the really empowered, overly engaged patient or adequately engaged. I guess it depends <laughs> what mm -hmm. point of view you're coming from. Sue, are you seeing that there is a rising trend in really empowered patients as you describe? Or sure. are, are you well aware that you're serving or, you know, or is it your opinion that you're serving kind of one strata of the population and there's going to be others on the other ends of the curve? There are, are various, you know, slices of populations for sure. You have, I think, a middle group of people who are getting it who are saying, you know, I am an active consumer for things I need for my home or the car I'm going to buy or this or that. And now I'm seeing news articles and other things about changes in healthcare, either whether it's insurance issues or government leg legislation that may affect me or diagnostics or treatments or even, hopefully more, clinical trials. I better ask about that. I better understand how that affects me. And as I said, I think more and more someone in the family is becoming engaged because they want, want to get well. They want their loved one to get well. And so they're saying, maybe I need to go the extra mile. So I've seen that growing. I think when you see the family unit as the patient, then you see that they're going to use new tools to have a louder voice and get what's best for them. And obviously, to better outcomes. I mean, we have had many. I believe it. Yeah. And it's it's just been proven time and time again that if a patient is engaged in their care, their outcomes do improve. And which is probably why we've had many guests on the show talking about how to rectify the situation with under-engaged patients. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you about what to do about patients who are ready, willing, and able to engage. Let's talk about this. If I am the leader of a, say, a provider organization, what can I do to help these empowered patients do what they can do? Like, what, what are maybe some ideas that you would have or advice that you would give? First of all, give people the tools. And that means throughout your organization, people want to get well, people want to have. The appropriate tests. They do want to take the medicines that have been recommended to them if they understand them. So first of all, there needs to be a transparency, and not just from the doctor, but from the very first person you walk in to see who's the receptionist at a clinic. Or my mother-in-law broke her arm. We could ask anybody in that hospital, how do you get here or there? And they would not only tell us, they would take us. And that was really helping us get where we needed to be faster, helping us feel confident about the care we were getting, and that from top to bottom, the organization wanted us to get well and not be anxious about our situation. So it has to be a commitment throughout the organization. That's part one. Part two is you have to think like a patient. You have to acknowledge people's fears and you have to understand that they're getting information from other quarters besides you, besides your doctors, besides the flyers that are in the elevator or in the clinic. They're getting other inputs. 
and they're going to question you on that. And that should be encouraged. And you should be confident that you will have answers that help them understand that you're committed to their health. Just taking that last one first, the idea of, of thinking like a patient and then also, which might actually be a, a separate line item there, the understanding that patients are getting information from someone other than you. There is a furious debate on the internet um, that's been going on for years amongst physicians some of which are in the camp of, oh, these patients, they should not be going on the internet. They're wasting my time. They come in asking for drugs they don't need or actually harmful or nothing to do with their condition, or they want all these tests, which are not also evidence-based medicine. They're getting stuff out of the National Enquirer, and I'm the one that has to either talk them off a ledge if they've convinced themselves they're suffering from some fatal ailment that they don't have based on this non-evidence-based anything, or it takes a lot of my time to explain to them that here's the course that we're going to take versus the physicians who are enthusiastic about the partnership. How would you address a physician in that former camp? Okay, well, let's talk about that. First of all, the horse is out of the barn as far as there being other information sources. Uh, years ago, as I was growing up, your only source of information was your doctor. And now your doctor can verify things or can challenge things you know, but they're not the only source of information. So that, that story is gone, okay? So then you say, as a healthcare organization, as an insurance company, as a provider yourself, how can there be in the system ways to efficiently help people be on track? And as you do it, have the patient and the family have confidence that you're on their side. And so it doesn't have to be in the exam room. I mean, look, I correspond on secure uh, servers now with my doctor's nurse. And I can ask questions, non-urgent questions. I heard about this or that. And sure, some resources need to be committed to that. I understand that. And I don't know how the codes go and how you can be reimbursed or how that's built into your costs. But it certainly is a savings if my anxiety or my questioning about certain things can be handled in some maybe electronic way. And then when I have my physical exam with my doctor, we can talk turkey and we're already both prepared to get things done in an efficient way. So I think there are new systems that can be developed, but they have to be developed because this is happening. Patients are gonna have questions. Patients, yes, are gonna see a TV ad or Mrs. Jones next door is gonna say, my dad had that illness and you should be treated in this way and demand of your doctor X or Y or Z. That's happening. So you have to deal with it, folks. And I think there are tools now we have that are accessible to most Americans an efficient way to do that. Do you see any best practices amongst providers? You know, have you seen any common themes bubbling up to the top? You know, things that either provider organizations or physicians are doing, you know, more at a tactical level, like, you know, mm -hmm. what are the best practices to, as you say, you know, efficiently get patients on track? One of them is, I think, you have your brain trust, often your leading physicians, but increasingly it may be your clinical nurse coordinators, could be your 
physician assistants even, your oncology social workers, when I think about oncology, but your financial assistance people be out there in the public and increasingly through, I believe, digital platforms that are available to people, not just, you know, a seminar, but uh, increasingly out there in social media, Twitter, all these kinds of things so that they know your commitment to various issues and you can efficiently reach people in lots of ways and leverage the expertise that you have on your faculty, if you will. So it's not just in the exam room, it's not just in the clinic, but it's it's not just public speaking, but I think the digital platforms that are available now and very active in social media. I mean, we started a page for families affected by cancer on Facebook in three months that had 45,000 followers. Well, there's no reason why medical experts from different institutions or quite frankly, even leaders in insurance companies couldn't be part of the dialogue. That's what people are talking about. How do I get the right care? How do I pay for it? How do I have the right coverage? How do I know what's reliable information, what isn't? Be part of the discussion. That's interesting advice. So generally speaking, how providers and and nothing for nothing payers, even other stakeholders to greater or lesser extent, how they tend to approach social media, for example, is they'll set up their own website or server or whatever in a, in kind of a silo and, and try to own that conversation. So what you're saying is, look, there's already conversations that are transpiring, you know, on Facebook or elsewhere. So, you know, instead of trying to silo off your own little conversation, go join those. Right. There are a few things I've noticed. One of my favorite people in the world is a, is a laboratory science expert named Susan LeClaire from the University of Massachusetts. And she, for years, has been a member, if you will, of various groups that are talking about various blood issues, blood cancer, others where people have a lot of tests. And she'll chime in when there's a question. And the thousands of people who join know Dr. LeClaire is sort of a part of it. And she devotes a little bit of time to chime in. And so she adds her expertise. She's not part of the discussion all the time. I know that there are many other providers I know who monitor some of these groups. So they kind of take the temperature of what the community is saying, but they don't participate. But what I'm saying is, why can't we all be in it together? The other thing I'd mention is on the social media pages that many hospitals have, they are very careful about what's posted there. And I think in the worst case, they make it a marketing tool and it's only the rah-rah stuff that shows up. In other words, it's part of their marketing campaign and there's not really community there of their patients who are trying to help one another or be in a dialogue with the people who work at that institution. And I think getting away from that, all we're all in it together feeling is a mistake. I think that's what you should foster and not inhibit. The original question was how, if you're a provider organization or, you know, other stakeholder, you can, you know, what are the best practices to sort of efficiently get patients on track? And and you said three things. I'm just kind of recapping here. One is outside the exam room, provide connectivity points. So email address mm-hmm. with a nurse. In the exam room, but then also interestingly, and I haven't heard this one before, if you want patients to have the right information and be seeking 
credible, validated sources of information, then go where the patients are and make sure that they're getting the right stuff. Be proactive. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, and also, there is what's developed now, and I've been part of it, is from medical conventions, bringing the news from the medical convention, even live broadcasting, to patients with the conditions discussed. Whether you're an insurance company, whether you are a provider organization, you attend many of these major meetings and you can have a point of view that can be expressed immediately to people affected by the conditions discussed. And so I think you should seek that out. That's part of your, you should actively, if you will, do media relations. And I'm not talking about to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. I'm talking about channels that reach patients affected by the conditions that you either insure or provide care for uh, or make products for. You know, help them understand what the clinical community or what the provider community is talking about and what it could be significant to them. You have to be part of the dialogue. And otherwise, patients are going to do it anyway. So if you are worried about it getting off track, why don't you put your two cents in and do it immediately? Yeah. And I think the other thing that that does is demonstrate an organization's commitment to the empowered patient. If we're encouraging patients to come in and ask questions or read the article, you know, I think these days, exactly like you just said at the top of this conversation, you know, you got a provider with one hand on the doorknob uh, in the exam room. That's kind of off-putting. A patient might feel uncomfortable and, and like they are causing someone inconvenience if, if they start asking questions or, or being empowered in that moment. Right. I wanted to bring up something, Stacey. You know, um, years ago, it, it had nothing to do with medicine, but there was a, something I needed. And I was asking somebody who'd been sort of a salesman from an organization to what we did. And he said, look, I'll tell you what I can do and what I know and if I don't know it, or if I'm not even sure my organization can provide it, I'll try to help you find out where it's available. So if you go back to thinking about patients and the changing landscape of medicine, we want to believe that the first doctor we see has all the answers. But I think as medicines become increasingly complex, we know that they might not. So hopefully they're a trusted advisor. And that advice would be not just what they think about things or what they can do for me there, but increasingly as research moves forward, for example, I'm going to count on them and I'm going to expect to them that they'll say, well, you know, there is a research study going on somewhere else and I'll try to help you find it or I'll comment on it even if we don't have it. And so I guess what I want to feel from any clinic I walk into is that they're going to do the best for me there that they can. But if they feel that there's some limitations or something else that could help me that's reliable, they'll also help direct me to proper resources for that as well. And that they're looking out for me totally, not just as a business that's trying to take advantage of me, if you will, or whatever support I have as a patient for them, but to help me get well. So that's kind of upending the paternalistic um, model of practicing medicine that we have long, sure. I was going to say enjoyed in this country. That's probably not the right word. 
So um, attaching what you just said to something that you had mentioned in an earlier conversation, which was about if you have a local community oncologist, for example, and a patient comes in with a rarer form of cancer or, you know, with precision medicine these days, it could be almost any form of cancer. There's just so much that is going on that it would be impossible for that physician to stay on top of. Meanwhile, you have this empowered patient who has just spent the past month reading everything there is to read about their particular form of whatever it is that they have. So it's definitely a situation where the patient might know more about that very narrow slice of of the medical world. Do you feel like this is going to be a generational thing? Like the the old school docs out there are just not going to be able to cotton on to this notion and it's going to be up to the millennials to lead us forward? Or how, how do you see this? I think it's variable. I mean, I met some older physicians who say, look, Things are changing fast. There are things I learned in school or some of the courses I took even a year ago that are being superseded by what's new. And I'll help you get what's right for you. Or there are others who are saying, come on, I've been doing this for years. Yeah, maybe you heard about this or that, but I'm not sure it applies and I know what works and I'll take care of you. I think it's variable, but I think it's changing. So it's not only generational. I think it varies by personality type. But what I would say is the families touched by serious conditions now are increasingly going to expect a physician to be a transparent, open advisor, do what they can, and recognize that there may be things that are going on elsewhere that could be of use to the patient. And they'll be happy to weigh in on that, but it may not be what they do and make those recommendations. And I really appreciate that. Here's what I have. Here's what may be somewhere else that might help in your situation. Let's discuss it. Just pivoting a little bit, let's talk about payers for a moment. Payers have a really vested interest to engage with, they call patients members, you know, to to engage with their members for a whole bunch of different reasons. And there is a whole cottage industry which has sprung up to assist payers in engaging with their members, but they often have a really rough go of it. You know, they can't seem to manage to do this well. Do you have any advice for or or insight into why this may be and what a payer could do about it? I think that they need to speak out publicly. I mean, there's a big, big discussion going on about the cost of care. Okay. And what affects the cost of care? And I think many people, certainly in um, government legislative bodies of politicians have zeroed in on drug costs. And as a two-time cancer survivor, I'm very aware of very high costs for certain specialty medicines, but it applies in other therapeutic areas as well. We talk about the high cost of drugs. Well, the drug companies are sort of fighting back and saying, no, There's a lot going on with the insurance companies and what they require, what they pay for, or middlemen, uh, as described, pharmacy benefit managers and all these different groups that patients don't understand. And so those guys on the payer side, they got to speak up and say, and I think the consumer or even the big employer groups have to understand these payers 
are really transparent and part of the discussion and explaining their perspective on what they can do with the resources they have and staying in business as well. So that story is often not told. It's not part of the public discussion. And there's going to be a lot of pushback specifically from the pharmaceutical companies who feel that they're getting tarred unfairly and that legislation and other uh, you know, public perception is making them seem like the demon when there are other players. And so if there are other players and they have their point of view, they've got to speak up in the public discussion. Yeah, it is a soapbox that I have stood on any number of times relative to what is the cost of care, especially in in cases where the patient has to bear that cost. And quick recap, the only two stakeholders in the system who have a vested interest in the cost of care in keeping it down are patients and employers. So providers are also, um, pharma is is one stakeholder, as you, you just said, other stakeholders that really accelerate the cost of care are hospitals and hospital systems. And that's often overlooked. Let me mention that for a second. So again, I'm just going to use an oncology example, and I'm not an expert in that. And and I'm sure your uh, listeners that are among them are smarter about it than I am. So in the oncology world, which I know, large hospital groups have been buying up oncology practices. My understanding is the Individual oncology practices had a certain markup on the infused medicines that they gave at their clinic. And that as the hospital groups have been buying up these practices, they've been getting discounts, bigger discounts, because they're buying more for these infused medicines that are used in oncology. But they also have a higher markup to the insurance companies. Now, maybe the patient doesn't see that, but that's a cost for the payers. So there's there are a lot of things in this complex world to be questioned that affect cost. In the end, though, uh, it's not just the employers and the payers who are worried about this. Of course, it's also government, which is a big payer. So I think this has got to be sorted out. And for the patient today, the patient who walks into the clinic who's being prescribed X or Y, whether it's infused or it's a medicine they get from the pharmacy or it's sent to them in the mail or whatever it is, they're increasing worry about today or tomorrow, how will they afford the medicines they need or the multiple medicines they need? And then you have all the questions of maybe partly about cost. Will people continue to take the medicines they need as prescribed to get well, right? Based on the research studies that showed, you know, take this for so long and here's how you should do better. So uh, there's got to be a lot more transparency and also more awareness of what affects cost and how the patient can be protected in that. So I'm just going to plug Elizabeth Rosenthal's book. There is an entire chapter on why costs go up for infusions when a hospital buys an ambulatory infusion clinic. But here's my question for you. All right. So knowing this and knowing that costs definitely are accelerating at this moment in time, almost a fifth of our GDP pays for healthcare. 
and it's going up and, and the patient out of pocket or the, the patient outlay as a percentage of that is, is certainly rising as well. What can organizations do aside from keep their costs down? But is there anything relative to kind of along the lines of the things that we were talking about before? How can organizations help manage these costs, figure out the costs, survive the costs? One of the biggest issues, and I think there's been a lot of effort on this, has been in prevention. You know, how can we have the typical American family understand the things that affect their health so that bad things can be headed off in advance or things can be dealt with earlier? Now, some of this is going to relate to perhaps changes in government legislation. And if your listeners have a point of view on that, I think they should really engage the typical American family more to understand the stakes that could affect them. There's a lot going on now. It's, uh, you know, year messages from all sides. But if your organization has a certain point of view to help people understand how certain changes might affect them. So these are legislative changes. Beyond that is, I think in everything you do, help the patient and the family understand you're their partner in helping them live long term. So it's not just uh, wear seatbelts or, you know, stop smoking, but there are other issues as well related to even understanding your medicines, not just writing a prescription, but how does that medicine work for you? And how does it not work if you cut your pills in half or you forget to take a dose? What are strategies to use your medicine wisely? How do we know that you're working out for me to limit side effects of medicines? How do I know that you're looking out for me to make sure I'm on the right medicine right off the bat rather than working through what may be ineffective but cheaper medicines along the way? So how do we get to better health quicker? How do we preserve good health? And um, there are a variety of ways to do that. But I often think it comes down to honest communication. Just relative to the the financial aspect, I know that you had mentioned at an earlier time that some organizations have financial counselors or financial assistance that you really appreciated. I was just going to comment on that, Stacey. Mm-hmm. So there's an overlay of worry about the cost of care and how it affects the individual or the family. And so... One of the things that's very helpful, particularly as we have these expensive chronic conditions or chronic cancer, is there someone at the point of care or accessible through the point of care who can help counsel me on how I can get my medicines in an affordable way? Now, it's very complicated now, for instance, related to medicines that may be sent to you through a specialty or mail order pharmacy. So does the price vary from one to another? Do I have options? Can it be cheaper if I get it through a mail-order pharmacy than go to the retail pharmacy? Are there generics available or developing biosimilar medicines that be could be considered? So this is all something that there can be discussion about because, again, I want to get well. I want to understand my medicines. I want to use them properly. and I want to afford them. Who can counsel me on that? And there should be resources devoted to that. Let's talk about patient power. What resources are available on your website? Where is this Facebook group that you had mentioned? My wife and I years ago started doing patient education through video and ultimately through 
audio programs and on telephone conference call bridges and then on the internet. And that's been the through line is how to educate and empower specific patient units. So I'll include the family so that they can take back control and be more confident in the care they're receiving and play a greater role in that to, to get the best outcome. Patient Power now has become specifically a website, patientpower.info, which covers cancer, but we've covered a lot of conditions in the past, but very deeply. We go to medical conventions, we do live broadcasting interviews, we go to major medical centers and community medical centers and do events on site that are then broadcast live like a worldwide TV show. And then we syndicate our content through a variety of patient advocacy partners, medical center partners, community clinic partners. And then also we're very big into social media. So the social media page I was mentioning is called The Cancer Connection. And that is a way, a place where uh, patients can go and family members and they're sounding off and sharing information with one another. And we're doing one other thing as well. And that's called social media listening. And so with a partner where we are here in San Diego, we're actually watching what patients and family members say anywhere on the internet that's public. And increasingly we're engaging them. So we're categorizing what they're saying, whether it's something we have something to offer for, and then we're inviting them to participate in the discussion related to what their health concern is. So we're using technology now, digital communications, but also on the ground events, news coverage, and all aim to help the typical patient, and we're doing it in other languages, Spanish and other languages as well, be empowered and suggesting actions they can take to not only have more confidence, but more control and get to a better health status quicker. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Andrew. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.